And take your Bibles and turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We will be reading from verse 31 down through the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ. Well, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Your word, God. Your word is stunning, so encouraging. You are so good. Father, help us to know your word, to be as convinced as the Apostle Paul was as he penned these words, convinced of glory to come, assured of good things to come, Trusting in you, knowing that you are God. Help us now, Lord, as we look at your word to understand it. To then live it, to apply it, to trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What a great privilege it is to be able to stand up here and lead you in worship. I, I am, it's one of those uh, bittersweet things that I uh, groan over, the idea of leading uh, music. Uh, thankfully, the, the singers and everybody back here does a great job, and they kind of lead. I'm just kind of up here singing, so thank you, team, for all that you're doing. Uh, but it gives me an opportunity to stand up here and hear you sing which is, I wish everybody, uh, some of you would sh shudder at this thought, I wish everybody could be up here one Sunday uh, singing so you could see what this is all about. Uh, corporate worship is a wonderful thing. It, it, seeing everybody smiles and seeing everybody worship together and, and bellow out these beautiful lyrics of the glory of God, it's what we're all about, right? That's why we come to church on Sundays. Uh, we've just recently made a little change to the live stream, and there's kind of been a, a, a little bit of ruffle that we need to add the, the, the music back at the beginning. But uh, I, I will just give you a little, a, a, a little side note here. You cannot replace corporate worship by watching on live stream. It is not the same, beloved. You come to church so we can sing about the glory of God together. That's what we're here for. We worship God because he is worthy of all worship. And we come together and sing together and worship his name. So thank you. Thank you for worshiping with me. Our father is worthy of worship, isn't he? Amen. He's the only one that deserves 
to be called worthy this morning. In a world where relationships are often short-lived because of people's commitment levels are sadly lacking, there is a relationship we can count on forever. It is our relationship with our Abba, Father, our Heavenly Father. The reason we can count on it lasting forever is God himself guarantees the relationship. God is faithful to those whom he is committed to. The Lord does not allow anything to separate us from our relationship with him. That, beloved, is good news. The Lord does what he has ordained for his children. He is the sovereign over all things. Our relationship with God is so secure because God has ordained the beginning and the end. I know my Redeemer lives. I know I will see my Heavenly Father. I know the relationship is secure. Why? Because God guarantees it. Not because of me. Not because of my commitment level. But because of Him and because of His commitment level. That's what we see in our passage today. We can have confidence in God that glory is guaranteed. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus, you can know that glory is coming. Heaven is sure. Christ is king, and he will share his inheritance with us. Wow, what a promise. What a great news. Let me see some smiles. Come on, beloved, that's reason to smile. We have a Savior, we have a God, we have the Spirit that works in us and guarantees it all the way to the end. The chapter started with it in verse 1. Look at it, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And all God's people say, Amen. yes. Haley, you beat me to the punch. And from the very beginning of the chapter, he basically says, despite the battle that we're in, the struggle that we're in these bodies of death, we have confidence that we are going to glory, that our, our condemnation is done. It's paid for. Christ has done it. And in Christ, we're safe. Then more assurance comes throughout the rest of the chapter. As the Spirit's indwelling presence guarantees that every believer will continue to the end. See, the Spirit works within us. Everyone who is led by the Spirit of God is a child of God. Because the Spirit of God indwells us. And we testify with the Spirit that we are what? Children of God. And that's a guarantee. See, it's God. God did it. God saved us. God guaranteed that we're not condemned. And God what? Sanctifies us. He does it. The Spirit does it. He gets all glory. Not us. He gets it. Any good that we do, we say, God did it. Any bad we do, we say, I did it. God is good. The Spirit is good. The Spirit is powerful. He is working. It's a guarantee. We have hope. We have confidence. We have assurance. We have reason to keep going when the world gets difficult, which is regularly, isn't it? Some of us had a hard time just getting out of bed, putting the feet on the floor. Standing up straight. But God, he sanctifies us to the end. What a good God. Verse 17 and 18. 
and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's a promise of an inheritance, an inheritance with Christ. But with that promise of an inheritance with Christ, glory with him, there's also another promise of suffering. Suffering is a guarantee for believers. This is what we go through. The world suffers, but we suffer in many ways more. For we understand that we are in these bodies of death, and the most important thing for us to do is to be holy and to honor God and to obey him always. But we aren't, and so we suffer with dying daily. We're constantly saying, no, no, I don't want to do that. Oh, God, change me. Create in me a new heart. Continue to refine me for your glory. Glory's coming. It's a guarantee, but suffering is also a part of it. The humiliation has to come before the glory. This is God's pattern, beloved. And I know some of us might not even want to think on this, but this is the facts. To follow Jesus means to what? Pick up your cross and follow him. A cross is an instrument of suffering. This isn't given in our gospel presentation. This is why the evangelical church is abandoning God. Because they've been told a lie. They've been told a lie that God wants you to be happy, wealthy, and healthy. But the Bible says the opposite. God says humiliation before glory. Suffering before glory. That's the pattern. We see it again in our passage today. You say, well, I don't like that, Pastor Mike. Take it up with God. Maybe you're like the psalmist in Psalm 44. Hey, I've served you. I've served you, but why are we being destroyed by everybody? I think there's an answer to the psalmist question. Your relationship with God is more important than your circumstances. God is more important than your circumstances. Is God more important than your circumstances? Is God your all-satisfying one? Trust me, beloved. He is going to take finger by finger by finger anything that we hold on to too tightly. There is only one that is worthy of our worship Always, and that is God. The good news, he guarantees that his children will see and acknowledge that. Because, as we see in Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What do image bearers look like, image bearing of the son? What do we, how do we look like Jesus? I'll give you a hint. What did he do? Died. Died. Humiliation before glorification. Boy, does that fit in our worldview? Pain before glory? Yes. Because then I look like Christ. Because when I suffer and glorify Him, He is glorified even more. 
For the world shakes their fist at God and says, I deserve better. But the believer bows their head to God and says, I deserve worse. Christ deserves glory. I'm okay with him, not me. What a message, isn't it? This is the gospel. It's about God. It's not about me. It's about his glory, not about mine. But by the grace of God, he will share with me if indeed we suffer with him. The last time we saw that Paul's crescendo of hope just grows and grows in this chapter. You know, I, I have to admit to you, for the longest time I've, I've struggled with how does Romans 9 fit into all this? And the more I study this book, the more I see Romans 9 makes sense. You'll see it as we get into it in the next couple of weeks. But I will tell you this. Ultimately, when we view our relationship with God properly, that God is sovereign over our relationship, what God does with whom he does it really doesn't matter. We just have to what? Trust him. We have to trust God. That's the issue. God is God and we are not. We're okay with that with our personal relationship with God. But it's when we get into the nitty gritty of seeing that God doesn't choose everyone when it gets difficult. But all of this prep in Romans 8 is to set you up to go, yay God, I'm with you. Thank you. You promise I'm going to be saved to the end. And everybody says, amen. This is good. But do you really mean that? What if your children walk away from the faith? What if you bury a lost loved one, a parent that doesn't know Christ? Never repented. Are you okay with that? We're going to see. God is God. We are not. And we trust him. And I'm secure because he has secured it. Look at this crescendo of hope, the epistle has reached its climax of worship and hope, and Paul uses these rhetorical questions to conclude his argument. The questions are often answered or have an implied answer that wraps up the case for our confidence in God for the glory to come. Paul introduces this last section within the introductory question in verse 31. Notice, what then shall we say to these things? These things being that God has ordained from start to finish his own to look like Christ and to make much of Christ and to be glorified with Christ. What shall we say to these things? Well, then Paul begins to give more rhetorical questions, more arguments, five primary rhetorical questions that will strengthen our confidence of glory in Christ. Paul emphasizes the believer who is in Christ is secure and we all should have confidence that glory is a guarantee for every one of us who believe in Jesus. We can be sure that glory is coming. Why? Because God guarantees it. Look at the first question. If God is for us, who is against us? It's a statement of fact. If God is for us, then who is against us? No one of significance is implied. No one who can change our identity in Christ. No one who can separate us. No one who can condemn us. Notice the second question. 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Again, statement of truth. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Then the rhetorical question with the implied answer. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Again, the implied answer is what? Obviously, if God gave us the gracious substitutionary sacrifice of his son for our sin, then clearly we will share in glory with his son. It's a guarantee. If God gives us this, then we are guaranteed to be in glory with him. This is the gracious God that we have. He is love, isn't he? He is gracious. Next we saw who will bring a charge against God's elect. God is the one who justifies. Now the question is given up front. Who can give a, bring a charge against God's elect? A charge that would stick. The statement makes the answer easy that follows. God is the one who justifies. God is the one who declares right. God is the one that makes us righteous. God is the one who declares us right with him. And he does this for his who? His elect, his children. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. Remember, because of those whom he foreknow, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. The connection here is obvious, isn't it? From Romans 8, 28 to 30. Are you seeing the big picture? Are you seeing how it, the whole thing flows together? It all fits. It's an amazing, truly amazing argument. There is no charge that will stick against God's elect because God has settled our legal standing with him in Christ. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Then the last question that we covered last time. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So, question, who is the one who condemns God's own? Answer? Well, again, it's settled in the second half. It's settled by who was condemned? Jesus Christ. We're not condemned because he was condemned. This is the gospel, beloved. This is the summary of the gospel. Are we worthy of condemnation? Oh, yeah, we're worthy of it. But God, in Christ, paid for our sins. And so, therefore, we aren't condemned. God condemned his own son so that we would not be condemned. And Jesus... Victory over death guarantees it and shows it. When he rose from the dead, he was raised, showing what? What he did on the cross was enough. It finished. It paid for. It's done. It's perfect. It's complete. As Jesus' final words, it is finished. And then three days later, you know, there is nothing that could have held him in the grave. Nothing. He won. <laughs> he won. There was no way he could stay in the grave. It was impossible. He was victorious. He was the true overwhelming conqueror. Because he was condemned for us. And he is presently right now at the ruling position of authority in heaven. He's sovereign right now. King Jesus rules and reigns. And he died to pay for us, to purchase us. And guess what? <laughs> Let me tell you. If he paid for our sins, do you think he can guarantee that we're going to go to glory? Oh, yeah. He is in the sovereign ruler. He is at the right hand of God. It's his position. It's done. It's settled. And notice, he also intercedes for us. 
presently. That's mine. Yeah, he blew it again. That pastor, Mike, he blew it again. But I paid for him. I took care of him. His account settled. He's mine. Spirit work in him. Refine him. Discipline him. Encourage him. Protect him. Because he's coming with me into my kingdom. It's a guarantee. So our condemnation is not even possible. As Schreiner states, believers can face the day of judgment with confidence. For those whom God has chosen as his own will certainly not be accused on the day of judgment. That's good news. Now today we will cover Paul's fifth and final rhetorical question. It fits so well and summarizes really the whole chapter. It's the summation of the argument that the believer is secure in the love of Christ. Let's read it again <clears throat> in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we are overwhelmingly conqueror. Through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here we see Paul's final argument. It's the case is closed that we're secure. It actually has several parts to this final question an overview, then a list of specifics, then a scripture reference from Psalm 44 as read earlier, then the explanation and the glorious conclusion, summation. Let's walk down through it. Look at the question again, the opening question with its various parts. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The rhetorical question again assumes the answer. This answer, no one and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. No one and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Is separation from the, our new loving relationship with God that we have in Christ even possible? I, I was at a party just recently and somebody uh, said it's just very important that we all understand that we have free will. We have free will. We have choice. We can have choice. We're not robots. And I thought to myself, no, I'm not a robot, but I am sure glad God's choice stands. I'm sure glad God is the one who chooses whether I will continue to end to the end or not. Because if it was up to my choice and my flesh, I would run. I'd run for the hills. See, beloved, God does not do violence to our will. But he works in our hearts to cause us to want him. And that is God. And that is his sovereignty. Because if not, when tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword came, we would do what? Run for the hills. The implication is, though, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Christ. This word separate here is very important. It's a slight shift in focus over the legal language of verses 31 to 34. Separation has relationship in mind, not judicial standing. Relational, not judicial. 
So not only are we not condemned because we are in Christ, not only are we positionally, judicially not condemned, we are also not able to be separated relationally from God. This is crucial. We can't be separated from our loving Heavenly Father. Our Abba is forever. We are adopted. We are His children. We can't be separated from the love of Christ. It can't happen. The relationship cannot be severed. The golden chain of 28 to 30 guarantees this, that there's no condemnation judicially and there's no separation relationally. We can't be separated from Him. The love of Christ is synonymous with, notice in verse 39, the love of God. Again, showing that Christ is God, as we learned in Sunday school. Christ is God. We can't be separated from the love of Christ. It's the sacrificial commitment of God that He has towards His own that guarantees that we can't be separated from it. This love is a guarantee. Once again, we had a wedding in our church. It's great. Three over, uh, uh, over the first half of the year. Isn't that great? Weddings are wonderful. And the subject of love, the love of Christ, came up. And it's on my mind all week again. Remember, even in the ceremony, what do, what do we say? We quote the verse, What God has put together, let no man separate. The love of a husband and wife is supposed to be until what? Death do them part. Sadly, death does come though, doesn't it? It does come. But the marriage relationship is supposed to be a reflection of a bigger relationship, a more important relationship. And what is that relationship? It's the love that Christ has for his bride. And let me tell you something. Our Groom, Christ, does not abandon his bride, ever. <coughs> That's good news. In our case, our relationship is unbreakable because the groom guarantees it. And the, and the guarantor is Christ Jesus, our Lord. <laughs> It is Christ the Lord that guarantees that we cannot be separated from his love. Notice the little strange twist in this verse, though. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution? Wait, it starts with a who. And then the next questions are what? They're what's. <laughs> they're circumstances. They're not who's, but they're what's. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then, will tribulation? That's a what. That's not a who, correct? The implication is, is that nothing that any character, person, or being brings upon us will separate us from our new relationship with God in Christ Jesus. No character, no person, no being will bring anything into our life that will separate us from the love of Christ. Our circumstances, this is something to take note of, our circumstances don't change our relationship with God ever. Our circumstances don't change our relationship with God ever. Thus, even our feelings don't change our relationship with God ever. It's important to note in Psalm 44, oh, the more I think on this, Shane, me and Shane had a great talk before his service about this. He, poor dude, I gave him a very hard passage to read. The more I think on this, this is what the psalmist knew. He was just agonizing in the circumstances. He knew that God was a shepherd. He knew that he had right relationship with God because God had delivered him. But the circumstances were front and center in his mind. 
and he was struggling with this. Circumstances are bad, they're hard, this is difficult. But, but, my circumstances don't determine whether I'm rightly related with you. Even if all the world comes against me and everybody forsakes me, I've got God. I'm in right relationship with Him. And that's all that matters. Often our circumstances can be used by the enemy, though, to cause us to doubt God's love, right? Often we get in these horrible situations of life, the difficulties, the pains of life. Trust me, I get it. I know it's hard for you. Beloved, I know many of you are struggling and you're hurting. I get it. I know. I know where you are. I hurt with you. But don't, <coughs> don't listen to the enemy's lies. What's happening in your life does not determine whether or not you're rightly related to God. And he loves you. He's got you. Even when you're hurting. <coughs> what happens, in our, happens to us in our present world doesn't determine our present or future relationship with Christ and with God. When bad things happen to us, this must not be taken to mean God has left us or forsaken us. This is opposite of what the scripture's explanation of a relationship with God in Christ is. Again, this is the agony of Psalm 44. Their struggle doesn't change their relationship with God. He's still, they're still his children. They're still his sheep. That's the basis. Believers in Jesus have, a hard, have hard things happening to us all the time, right? But as we know from Romans 8, 28, he's already talked about this. Even the apparent bad circumstances are being used by God for our good and his glory. Even the famines, even the tribulation, even the distress, even the nakedness, even the peril, even the sword. Yes, even that. And that doesn't determine whether or not we're separated from God or not. The implication by Paul is, is that those things don't have any play ultimately about whether you're going to be separated. We're being made to look like his son. So circumstances don't define our relationship with God. In fact, they reveal it. What? Yes. I was reminded of again, this again on Wednesday night at, at, at our Bible study. Ken taught an overview of Daniel. And the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the perfect illustration of this. The faith of these three men shows God is graciously working in his own in all circumstances. Remember, they were told, bow down, bow down. If you don't bow down, you're going to be thrown into what? The fiery furnace, right? They were told to bow down to this false image, but they wouldn't. Remember Daniel 3. Look at it. Oh, there it is. This part right here, 13 to 18. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, <coughs> persecution, tribulation, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then the three were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, at the moment... You hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, dragon, psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But... Even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What is that, beloved? That's faith. That's commitment to the relationship that they have with God. Now, we know that God rescued these three servants of Yahweh, but... It's important to note that the three witnesses were not committed to God based on their circumstances. Live or die, they would only bow to the one true God. This is evidence of God's gracious work in their hearts. They were Israelites. Do you understand how significant this is? Not all Israel is Israel, by the way. They were Israelites. They were in captivity because Israel had what? Forsaken God. Had made Baal. Had worshipped Baal. But you've got these three guys saying, no way. Uh-uh. <laughs> uh-uh. This is evidence of God's unmerited favor working in them, isn't it? Grace. How sure am I that we are going to finish this battle? I'm guaranteed. I know it. Because he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the heart of a born-again believer. This is all of us in Christ today. Our circumstances do not determine our connection to God. We are sealed in him by the Spirit. We are forgiven because of Jesus' atoning work. And we are God's adopted children predetermined before the foundation of the world. I know I'm going to heaven because of God. Why? Paul has already explained in the previous verses why. He says, because the golden chain of salvation is a guarantee by God in Christ. Separation isn't possible because what? Those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. It's settled. Separation is impossible. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Here, tribulation and distress are general ideas associated with suffering. While I believe believers in Christ will avoid the great tribulation, because that time is the time of the wrath of God being poured out on the world, the fact is there's much tribulation that we will endure while living on this earth. Various distresses. Whether the tribulation and distress or illnesses we are experiencing or relationship pains of living in a broken world or maybe it's that new mom that gets very little sleep and she's like on the edge just trying to survive. Or the elderly spouse who is watching their loved one slip away into the arms of Christ. Now painful that is. Or the parents who are watching that wandering child that's walking away from their faith. And they're grieving. Or that Christian businessman who watches his fellow employees mock him when he walks up on them laughing at him for serving Jesus and not bowing to the world. There's pain in this world. Various tribulations and distresses. We're all dying regularly, aren't we? And there's persecution, which is obviously attacks from people because we stand with Christ. And by the way, that could get much worse in the coming days. Do you understand? When we say that 
We are not going to agree that the LGBT lifestyle is okay. It is sin. And it must be repented of and trust in Christ. Or when we say that women will not be pastors and preachers at our church, we are going to stand on the truth. Or when we say that this is God's perfect holy word and this is what we're going to stand on. Let me tell you, beloved, days are coming when persecution is going to come. But those things cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Because we will die for Christ if that's what he calls us to do. Here, Paul mentions famine. In a time when the world would go without food, food shortages were common in the Bible times. Acts 11, 28 talks about it when this one man stood up and indicated through by the Spirit, that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. Interestingly, we struggle with high gas prices and paying $5 for a gallon of milk. I don't know about you, but our country is doomed. We can't handle this. I'm not saying, I'm not speaking politically about whether it's good or bad for, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God is king. He raises up nations and puts them down. God's God. He can do what he wants. We can't handle a famine. If we can't handle paying $5 for milk. And we complain. Beloved, how are we going to do it when he takes everything? When we lose stuff to follow God? How are we going to do? I'll tell you how we're going to do. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because what I have, what I own, my circumstances... Do not determine my relationship with God. It could get worse. <laughs> the repulsive. Nakedness. Wow. You can see why the evangelical church is just fleeing from God. We've been told our best life now. Lie! We've been told Rick Warren's purpose-driven life is all about you're happy. And getting people in by being pragmatic. We've been told, fill the churches by making it easy for them to be there. You know what that is? A lie from the pit of hell. And he is a heretic. Period. Nakedness? We can't handle coming to church and not having coffee. <laughs> Nakedness. Can you imagine if we took all of our clothes from here, all of us, went home, grabbed all your clothes, and brought them here? I bet you we, couldn't, oh, we could fill this whole building from top to bottom almost. about peril or danger, sword. Again, in Christ, those circumstances don't matter. We can't be separated because Christ and because God has guaranteed it. That's why Paul proclaims to live is Christ and to die is gain. And by the way, many of the circumstances that he went through, he talks about them. Look at them. This is Paul himself. I mean, he's talking, he's only giving what? 
things that he went through. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm talking about the false teachers. I'm more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I've received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers. Peril. Dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in cities, dangers in wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, with often without food, in cold and exposure, nakedness. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. This is the same guy that's writing Romans 8. He's speaking from first-hand experience, too. There's nothing that can happen to us circumstantially that's going to change our relationship with God. Because God has settled it. Beloved, Paul understood the pain and persecution were temporary but that Jesus was all satisfying even in the hard times. That's why he could say rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And in this is true of every believer in Christ. Everybody who knows Christ as their Lord and Savior, that's true of us. See, God works in us to confirm that we are secure in Christ. We are loved. We are justified. We are guaranteed of glory. We know it. We're confident of it. So the doubter might be tempted to ask, why if I'm God's own child is all of this bad happening to me? But this is a wrong question to ask. Because our present life is not only filled with grace to believe, it's also with grace to suffer. Paul makes this point. Notice that this is part of our life. Verse 36. Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are we're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Again, quote from Psalm 44. The pattern is consistent in both the Old Testament and the New Testament time. God's own are not exempt from suffering while they wait for glory. In fact, often we are harassed and mistreated because we are his sheep. Persecution and suffering for his sake is guaranteed for God's own. Again, not one of those promises we find in that book of promises that people have. But this is a guarantee. The psalmist was speaking of the righteous and the harm they face as God's own in a lost world. And then Paul brings it forward to our new time, our new covenant relationship time. God has ordained suffering for all of us. But this suffering doesn't change our relationship with God. Paul again is drawing from 8.17. If children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him putting it all together, isn't he? Humiliation before glorification is a biblical pattern. If you're not dying, you're not his. But if you are dying, you are his. And you're not going to lose it. You're secure. God graciously saves us, but then we continue to endure pain and suffering that the world brings upon us, especially because we associate with God. That's why Satan attacked Job. That's why Joseph was persecuted by his brothers and Potiphar's wife and the guys that forgot his dream interpretation. This is why David suffered at the hands of Saul. This is why the prophets who prophesied were persecuted 
This is why John the Baptist was beheaded. This is why much of the early church fathers, out of the 12, 11 of them died. Martyrs' deaths. This is the pattern, beloved. For God's sake, for God's sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We will suffer while we are in our unglorified bodies, but none of the suffering will stop our relationship with God. We are secure in Christ because God guarantees it. But all of this suffering is actually what? A great opportunity. Look at it. This is stunning. Stunning. I'm going over. Hang in there. Y'all can handle it. But all of the suffering, look at it. But in all of these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. Again, suffering doesn't change our relationship with God and Christ. It just reveals our relationship to the world. Do y'all see this, beloved? This is so crucial, so important. See, God's children have victory through the trials of life through Christ who loved us. Do you see that? Through Him. He works in us in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our struggles and in the tribulation and in the trials of life. He what? works through us to bring us to the end. Paul states we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him. This overwhelmingly conqueror means we are winning a great and glorious victory. This is the emphasis of victor or conqueror or overcomer. We are super conquerors through Christ. Isn't this encouraging? Our circumstances don't separate us. They actually give us ground for victory. You ask me, why am I suffering with this situation? You fill in the blank. Why am I suffering? If you're a believer, it's so that you can be shown to be an overwhelming conqueror. It's so that you can show off the glory of God in the midst of your difficulty. Is that enough to keep us going? It is. We'll close with this. I love this song. God in Christ works through us to bring us through trials with our faith in him. We hold on because he's making us hold on. He will hold me fast as we will sing. I love these words from Steve Green's song. It's perfect. Yes, I just revealed I'm an old man that likes Steve Green. And yes, it's operatic. Grace and nothing more. Look at these words. I thought while on this voyage long, my strength God would increase. And at some point along the way, my struggling would cease. I fought with boldness, wind and wave, and yet the skirmish lost. Exhausted, all provision gone. The channel still uncrossed. As lifeless I in stillness drift, just strength enough to pray. It's only then I feel the surge that speeds me on my way. By his own hand and faithfulness, he steers me toward a distant shore. And the wind that billows in the sail is grace and nothing more. Yes, it's grace and nothing more. Dear friends, our relationship with God is secure no matter what we go through. His grace billows in the sail, causes us to continue to the end for the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the amazing truth found here.
Oh, please, Lord, help us to exalt Christ. Help us to honor him. We, are, we acknowledge that we are weak and we are needy and we are dependent. But God, you are faithful. You will hold us. You will keep us. Our relationship with you is secure. All praise and glory to you, our Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.